Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, verse 4, first of all, you have forsaken your first love, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. Uh, even uh, those of us who aren't teachers remember the panic that would uh, grip a school uh, when the uh, HMI inspector was to visit. Uh, there would be a scurrying around, uh, clearing cupboards, uh, making sure that all the uh, paperwork was up to scratch and something of a nervousness that classes would play up because there was someone in the back of the classroom there to uh, assess the teacher this time. In the book of the Revelation, we have the Lord Jesus uh, coming to inspect the well-being of the seven churches in Asia, the first of which is the church at Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is the Lord of his church who now comes to Ephesus to see how things are. Because he holds the uh, seven stars in his hand and walks among the lampstands, he is uniquely aware of the circumstances of the church. He is no absentee landlord who comes now and again. He knows all the ordeals that the church has gone through. He knows the opposition they have overcome. And he knows also uh, the sin uh, that is there. Uh, the, the coldness that has crept in. By comparison to the other churches, the church at Ephesus has a good report. Uh, Jesus has more good to say about them than bad. But there's one very significant Reading comment. You have lost your first love. You have forsaken your first love. And alongside that uh, observation, there are three commands. Uh, because this is the, the situation in Ephesus, uh, they must remember, remember the height from which they've fallen, and they must repent of where they are right now, and they must recover. They must do again the things that they did at the first. That's the first of these three commands that we're going to be looking at, not just today, but in our three subsequent Lord's Days. Uh, the need to remember, and especially to remember uh, the days when we were walking closer with Jesus than we are now. Remember your first love. Ephesus, where the church was situated, was a, a desperately superstitious uh, community. Religion was intertwined with, with magic and, and all kinds of, of superstitious rites. Uh, in fact, uh, so deeply embedded was uh, this superstitious religiosity that uh, much of the commerce of Ephesus was based upon the, the provision of uh, silver idols and trinkets and amulets for uh, the, the worship uh, largely of, of Artemis or Diana, the great goddess, uh, for which Ephesus was renowned. And the worship of Artemis was, uh, took place in a huge temple dedicated to her, which was so enormous that it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
The gospel came to Ephesus uh, first through Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Acts 18, 18-22 tells us that when uh, Paul uh, was uh, journeying from Corinth to Antioch, uh, he left them there in Ephesus, and the church was founded through their witness. And then Paul came later on to Ephesus, and he went first, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue where Jews and God-fearers were to be found, and he was there for three months. And then the usual thing happened, they kicked him out, and he went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he spent two years lecturing, discipling, challenging the worldview that these uh, people had, nurturing new converts, building them up in the faith. So this was an immensely privileged church. Few of the churches (coughs) that Paul founded had such a prolonged period of discipling as the church at Ephesus. And this, uh, this becomes apparent in the comments that the Lord Jesus has to say years on in terms of how committed they are to the truth. Doctrinally, they've been well-founded, and they've stood well on the truth. The gospel made such an impact in Ephesus that uh, Demetrius, one of the the silversmiths whose employment was centred upon uh, making silver idols, complained that they were being done out of business because of the the great movement of people from the the worship of Diana or Artemis to the, the new way. And he stirred up a crowd saying that the city itself was liable to lose uh, its prestige as a centre of Artemis worship. And you remember from Acts that there was a great riot and Paul has to be taken to the theatre, which is an enormous building, and only by the intervention of the town clerk uh, is he able to escape a lynching. Paul goes on from there and... Uh, it's only uh, later on when he's journeying uh, from Greece back to, to Antioch uh, that he calls in at Ephesus and he has this very poignant farewell address to the Ephesian elders on the shoreline. And he warns them about uh, false teachers who would slip in and who would be like wolves in sheep's clothing uh, in the congregation. They'd look fine on the outside, but they'd have toxic teaching and the, the church had to be on its guard against Uh, these intruders. Now, the time at which John has his vision, it's reckoned, uh, there's a debate about the timing, but most likely it's 95 AD. And the church in Ephesus was founded around 52 AD, so there are around 40 years or so of a time gap. So you could say two generations (coughs) have passed since the gospel came to Ephesus. How is the church faring? John himself uh, will have an interest in the progress of this church at Ephesus, although he does not yet know it. Uh, Tradition has it that after he was released from uh, his exile on Patmos, he has his vision uh, on this island of Patmos, and he would spend his last days in Ephesus. And there's a stern warning for the church in Ephesus. The warning is, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Now, the lampstand, uh, in the book of Zechariah, the lampstand uh, is is seen and there's a a picture of a continual flow of oil, the, the oil of the Holy Spirit, 
uh, to a, a seven-stemmed candelabra. And so the lampstand is a picture of the, the, the light, the witness of the Spirit in the midst of, of a dark world. And Jesus uses the, the picture of a lampstand also in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, Neither do people light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus says that the church is in danger of having its lampstand removed, Effectively, it means that the church itself and its witness in the community will simply be taken away. So it's a fearful uh, thought that if they do not recover uh, what they had at first, if they do not find again their love for the, the, the Lord that they had at the beginning, then they are in danger of having their very witness removed from Ephesus. One of the, the, the sad uh, facts of, of this warning to Ephesus is this is exactly what happened. Uh, this whole area where Ephesus was, uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, was once uh, one of the great centres of the Christian faith. Uh, the early ecumenical councils of the church were held in Turkey. The Nicene Creed uh, expressing orthodox uh, pure theology was hammered out uh, in Turkey. To Turkey today is synonymous with uh, a, a secularized uh, Islamic state. Uh, there are less believers in Turkey today than any of its surrounding neighbors like Syria and Iran. In the First World War period, three million Christians uh, were killed. As we meditate on uh, verse 5, I want us to think of the following. First of all, no church can think of itself immune to decline and extinction. Secondly, it's possible to be doctrinally strong, but to fall from your first love. And then thirdly, remembering our past can enable us to live in the present and move courageously into the future. So no church is immune from what is threatened to Ephesus, Possible to be uh, good on, on your doctrine, to be orthodox, but to lack love for Jesus. And remembering uh, the times of spiritual intimacy with God is a key way to stand firm now and move forward in the future. There's a saying that goes, no, no church, uh, the church is no more than one genera away, generation away from extinction. You nodding some heads, so you've heard that, and it's an interesting one because I've heard it as well. When I tried to research where it came from, uh, nobody's really sure where that statement came from. In fact, somebody even linked it with something that Ronald Reagan had said about freedom. So there you are. Uh, and at one level, the statement is actually quite clearly wrong because the church is not going to get extinct because the church has got the promise of Jesus. So globally, at least. Uh, it's, it's a false statement. Uh, the church is growing. It may be declining in certain parts of the world, but globally it's on the increase. And Jesus has promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But we have to say that locally, 
somber truth. Uh, and decline uh, can sweep in very, very quickly. See, the church is a living organism, and if you think of, of what a body is like, our bodies are made up of cells, and cells are either growing, multiplying, or they're dying back. And if the church isn't uh, growing, if it's not uh, multiplying, if the church isn't uh, healthy in terms of fulfilling its, its great object of glorifying God, and also uh, seeking to bring worshipping communities into being where they are not by evangelism. If it's not doing these twin responsibilities, if it's not carrying them out, then it's dying. And it's in danger of extinction. Now that should be a shocking thought uh, to us in Scotland. Because in Scotland we have this great Christian heritage. Uh, in so many ways, we've been a blessed nation. Uh, we have a history of revival, uh, remarkable revivals uh, down through the centuries. Uh, we had uh, a powerful reformation that came in at the grassroots. We were known once as the land of the book. But the decline of vital Christianity in Scotland is frightening. And it's been fast. Uh, there's a question that's put in, in census just now about uh, <coughs> religious affiliation. And the number of people who in Scotland are putting down the fact that they have no religious affiliation has increased at an incredible rate. 2001, it was 27.6%. 2011, it was 37%. Latest figures, I guess it's for 2014, 50, 50 over 50%, 50.6%. Some estimates, some estimates put the, uh, the number of conservative evangelical Christians in Scotland at 50,000, 1% of the population of Scotland. The Church of Scotland, the, the National Church, is losing members at a rate of 17 or 18,000 a year. So that's a free church being shifted out of the Church of Scotland every year. This year it's estimated that the uh, humanist celebrants will conduct more marriages than the Church of Scotland. These statistics should give us enormous concern. We're seeing, not just in a generation, but in a decade, alarming decline. And just as no land is immune from decline, no denomination is immune from decline. And we have seen that already in the Free Church. The Free Church uh, came out and the disruption to be a vital evangelical missionary sending church. And within a generation, it was at the forefront of the introduction of liberal theology from Germany. And the Lord removed the lampstand until there were only a tiny minority standing in the free church for the truth. And we're grateful that the Lord has blessed uh, that stand. But we have a very, uh, a very sobering reminder of the possibility of decline and the removal of a lampstand. And just as no land or denomination can think that it is immune, neither can any individual think he or she 
is immune from the warning that we have here in Revelation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Secondly, it's possible for us to hold on to the truth, to be uh, good in our doctrine, but to lack love. When Paul was saying his farewell to the Ephesian elders, he warned them against the corrosive effect of false doctrine. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. As we said, it seems that the Ephesian church had taken Paul's uh, words to heart, and they had been very effective at keeping out these wolves. Uh, They had distanced themselves from uh, ordinary Christians whose lifestyle didn't match a Christian profession. That was one thing. Also, they have been effective in keeping false teachers out of the church. And the Lord commends them for hating uh, the the things that he hates. They hated the Nicolaitans with their uh, false teachings. So they're commended in that respect. They had uh, a, a good commitment to doctrine. They had a lot going for them. They cared about doctrine. Uh, They persevered in the face of difficulties. And yet, the fact was that they were in danger of having the life and witness of the church taken away. The lampstand was in danger of being removed. Why was that? Because they had forsaken their first love. They were doctrinally pure, but they lacked love. <clears throat> Straight away, there are lots of people who, who love to make a big distinction between doctrine and love, and, and would make out that you know the problem is always that if you're too much into doctrine, uh, that's why uh, we're not loving. So what we need is more love and less teaching, to put it crudely. That's a very false distinction. We're never to choose between pure doctrine and, and practical Uh, and passionate love. Just as God is both life and love, it can be said of God, God is love, it can also be said of God, God is life. These are two truths. So we don't choose one from the other, as though we could uh, be a church that that, uh, has love but we don't have truth, or we could be a church that has truth but we don't have love. We need both together. And the problem was that the Ephesians had forsaken their first Love. Now, when Jesus says they're forsaking their first love, does he, does he mean they've, they've stopped loving uh, him or they've stopped loving one another? Uh, probably both. Probably both. It's easy to envisage a church that had become so engrossed in fighting uh, wrong doctrine that it had lost sight of the fact that good teaching is there to glorify Jesus. And so they had been involved in all the knockabout work of defending the truth, but they had lost sight of the Lord of the truth. You see, when we defend the truth of the word, why are we doing it? Because we love Jesus. Because it's his honour that's at stake. Yes? He is the reason 
why we care about the Bible. Because it's his word. But in practical terms, it's very easy sometimes to lose sight of that. And to simply be so involved in, in, in making a stand that we forget that it's about the Lord Jesus. And so the result is a church that settles down into an atmosphere which is orthodox, but it's cold. And there's plenty of activity, but it's not really done for Jesus. It's done because we are an evangelical church, and this is what evangelical churches do. And just as a church like that can lose sight of its love for Jesus, so love for one another is lost as well. And we become a company of the frozen. The frozen chosen. There's no sharing of each other's lives. No sharing of our joys and of our burdens. And we remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage on love. That if we don't have love, no matter how much insight we have, no matter how uh, much we do practically in terms of, of uh, even giving away all our goods to the poor, if we're not a community, if we're not people who are motivated by love for the Lord and for others, then it's of no good. It's no difference. Finally, we have to remember, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember that first love that you have forsaken. That might surprise us that uh, remembering is seen to be so important that it's the first step in being renewed and being revitalized. But that is what the Lord of the church says is the first thing that they must do. They must remember. They must bring to mind. They must recall. And one of the, the benefits of remembering is that we regain a perspective. See, when, when Christians drift from Christ, it's usually a slow, imperceptible movement. Yeah? People don't just overnight uh, give up Sunday worship uh, for Sunday television. Uh, it's much more subtle and gradual than that. Uh, they tend to, to follow the drift of what is going on around them. And because uh, they may be drifting along with others, there's no perspective on what is happening. They don't see uh, the, the perilous nature of what is going on. But when you compare yourself to the times in your life, and it's usually at the beginning of our Christian walk, when things were good, when we walked close with the Lord, we see that there is a big gulf. We give, we're given again the perspective. In other words, the height from which you have fallen. And it's only when we have that perspective uh, will there come a, a, a recognition that we need to repent. You can't repent unless you realize that something has happened, that there's been a shift, a movement. 
And so remembering comes before repenting. We remember where we were once, and then we repent that we're not there now. There was a time when the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders at least, had wept on the shore at the thought that the, the, the person who had been their father in the faith would see them no more. And they need to recall those early days of love and of devotion to the Lord. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And it's interesting in the Bible when, when the Lord uh, is wooing Israel back to himself. He calls on them to remember. When the Lord is speaking to Israel through Hosea, the, the prophet, he reminds Israel of her, her times of past intimacy with him. And it's, it's quite striking that, that the Lord goes back to the time of the wandering in the desert. Sometimes we think of that as a time of rebellion, but there's another angle as well. It's also seen in Scripture as a time of almost a spiritual honeymoon. The Lord alone with the people in the desert. Uh, the people, Israel, completely dependent upon their Lord as the great provider, grateful to him as their redeemer. And so some of the words in Hosea are beautiful as, as he recalls these days. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Chapter 9, verse 10. And again, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of, out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Think back on the days, the early days of your own Christian walk. And how it was then. Think back on the sense of dependency that you had on the Lord. That sense of anxiety that you might uh, be able to snatch some time to pray with him during the course of the day when there were so many busy things around you. How committed you were to the Bible and how excited you were at the things that you were discovering from the Bible. And how eager you were to be with other Christians. And think of some of the, the moving times that you recall in worship. When you felt God so near and were so assured of his love for you. And your love for him. These were days when we were like Israel. Alone in the desert with our God, with only one person who really mattered and who could help us. Nothing mattered more than his presence and nothing would come in the way. Nothing could come between us and fellowship with God 
fellowship with people of God. I'm quite sure if you think back uh, to your Christian life, these are the kind of memories that you have, as I have, of my early uh, walk with the Lord. And then things come in over time, and and often the things that come in are are actually good things in themselves, but they, they begin to assume an importance which is disproportionate and which draws us away from Christ because we're giving our affection to them. Things like, uh, like sport, music, family, politics, all kinds of things. I was reading uh, some commentary on, on the, the, the impact of social media in our day. Now, things like Facebook, Twitter, and so on, they have so much to offer for, for good. And yet, more and more, uh, church leaders are recognizing the, the impact, the negative impact on Christian lives as Christians become dependent, almost anxiously dependent on social media. So that whereas at one time, Christians would, would waken up and would move straight to their Bible or to prayer in the morning. What happens so often is that our phone alarm goes off and we begin to check messages and go to their Facebook feed or Twitter feed to see what's happened. And it happens, takes a grip of us through the day so that our minds are filled with really a stream of trivia instead of being nourished by the living God. Now, Our love for Jesus is something quite clearly that's unseen. Nobody really knows your heart today apart from God. But our love for Jesus exhibits itself in in outward ways that are seen. One of these ways, which is always pointed to, is the prayer meeting. The the prayer meeting is the, the spiritual thermometer of the church. Our desire to be at the prayer meeting is really a reflection of where we're at corporately. And that should give us concern. So there's a warning, and it comes not just to Ephesus, it comes to Coatbridge, it comes to Hope Church. Remember where you were. Remember where you were at the beginning and where you are now. Remember the height from which you have fallen. I want you to do that. I want you to think with me on the early days and bring them to mind. Try to remember this morning something of the thrill when the Lord brought you to himself, when you knew that you were a child of God, something of the passion, the commitment, the concern. Because remembering the past is the first step to moving to the future. Not with nostalgia, not with a kind of sentimental glow about the past. A realistic reminder that there, were, there was a day when we were closer to Jesus than we are today. So I want us to bow in prayer, just for a few moments together, to, to bow before the Lord 
and to allow the Holy Spirit to, to shine his light upon our hearts and to, to drive home something of the word to us as individuals as well as a congregation this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Holy God, we pray that you would indeed reveal to us if we have left our first love. Show us, Lord, the embers of our love for you. and Lord, it is these embers that we want more than anything else to be fanned into flame. Lord, help us to see that no matter how busy we are in your service, and no matter how orthodox we are in our beliefs, unless we really love you, we are on dangerous ground. Father, as we think of the, the place that we were once when we began as Christians, Lord, give us a desire to be there again, and a willingness to repent of everything that has made us move from that place, and an openness to recover to do the things that we did at first. Amen. Our closing hymn is William Cowper's uh, hymn where he is uh, doing exactly this. He is uh, looking back on, on his life reminding himself of where he was uh, in the early days as a Christian and longing for those days to return. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the land. Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his work?
And now may grace, mercy, and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.